0: You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart.
1: Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. With Washington in the grips of another and perhaps more dangerous debt ceiling drama, we have one of the sharpest chroniclers of Congress around to help us understand. He is Paul Kane, senior congressional correspondent and columnist for The Washington Post. Paul, welcome to First Look.
2: Any time, Jonathan. Happy to be here. <laughs> oh, you don't have to regret- compliment me that much.
1: <laughs> you're going to regret you said any time. So last week, uh, you you wrote uh, an eye-opening and widely shared piece with the, the headline "Defaulting on the Nation's Debt is Closer Than Anyone Realizes." Just the headline alone, I agreed with you. But since since then, President Biden has invited the top congressional leadership to the White House next Tuesday to discuss the debt ceiling and invitation that came after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen issued, made the announcement that we could hit the X date, the date that the United States would crash through the debt ceiling as early as June 1st. So are you more or less optimistic today about the US avoiding default than you were when you wrote uh, your article last week?
2: Uh, Less optimistic, Mm -hmm. Um, much less optimistic. Uh, The reality is, when I wrote that last week, there was still a decent chance that we were going to have, uh, you know, until the middle of June or possibly into Ju- into July, even uh, you know, even early August for the deadline. Today, we're looking at June 1st. Uh, there is still a chance that you could see some recalibration of incoming receipts, uh, outgoing revenue. And Janet Yellen could come back in a couple of weeks and say, hey, we have a little bit more time. But uh, even analysts like Mark Zandi are now saying that little extra cushion of time is maybe a week or so. Uh, we're not talking about having uh, like extra few months. And so now this is a Congress that has you know, basically has to deal with something in a matter of a couple of weeks that they thought they had a couple of months. And they had planned for this month to be quite leisurely. Um, Joe Biden is supposed to leave for Asia in a, in a week or so and spend a whole week over in Asia um, dealing with our our allies over there. Congress has a bunch of recesses. You know, the House is on recess right now. They don't come back until uh, uh, Tuesday night. So we really are in a uh, in a jam here. The timing is worse than it ever could have been. Right, and um,
1: you know, there are two members of Congress—one in the House and one in the Senate—who sort of exemplify, um, the issue, the problem, if you will. You've got Congressman Garrett Graves of Louisiana, Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, um, who sort of exemplify the positions of the Democrats and the Republicans. Talk more about the political
2: dynamics in in Congress right now. Sure, a guy like Garrett Graves. Is, is from the sort of Louisiana deal making tradition. Um, he started out as an intern for Democratic Senator John Breaux. He eventually went to work as a staffer for Democrat turned Republican Billy Tozan. Those two guys as members of Congress were always in the middle of of working on deals. He spent almost 20 years in the Capitol as a staffer. Um, and he has, he came to Congress about five, six years ago, not as some sort of rhetorical bomb thrower from the Tea Party or the MAGA wing. Um, He's conservative, true conservative. That's why he's trusted on uh, all sides. And then you had Chris Coons, who is this really well-liked person who always gets sort of tough assignments. Uh, He's chaired the uh, National Prayer Breakfast. He's chair of the Ethics Committee. He's often in the middle of all these bipartisan gangs that the Senate uses to try and get things done. And those two right now Both believe that their position is we should do nothing, that the Senate doesn't have to do anything in Kuhn's mindset. He thinks the House is crazy. They should just raise the debt ceiling without any strings attached. And Garrett Graves thinks, well, I worked with all these ideological factions in the House, and I put together a big, massive bill that Kevin McCarthy and his leadership team then passed on the House side, so we don't have to do anything. That's his belief. And so this is like these are two people who are usually sort of in that reasonable wing of each of their caucuses, and their position right now is, we don't have to do diddly. And the other thing um, you, you, you left out about
1: Senator Coons, he's from Delaware. And a, oh, and a yes. very good friend of the president, which makes his position even more interesting. You know, I became a debt ceiling nerd, uh, Paul, in 2011 when we went oh. through this, which was probably the most serious situation uh, up until now. In what ways are the di- dynamics today similar to and different from 2011?
2: Okay, so in it, there was a lot of similarities in that in 2011. You had a Republican majority in the House. They had just won the majority in the midterms. Um, but surprisingly, the Senate stayed in Democratic hands. And you had a president in his first term, Barack Obama, who was ramping up to run for reelection. Um, those three dynamics are the same now. You have McCarthy as the new speaker, uh, the new House speaker. There's a Republican majority that feels somewhat ascendant. And the Democrats, surprisingly, actually gained a seat in the Senate. So they still have the majority. And then there's Joe Biden, who is ramping up to run for re-election. So the, the dynamic, that triangle is, is the same. But these players are very different people than what you had back then. John Boehner was very confident in his standing and his position inside the House Republican Conference. Kevin McCarthy is not. It took 15 rounds of voting for McCarthy to get the, the speaker's gavel, and it took all sorts of promises to his far right flank um, in order to get enough of them to support him, to vote for him. Um, he is in a weak position. Um, Joe Biden is an 80-year-old president who uh, basically half of the Democratic voters out there, whenever they're surveyed, basically say, huh? We like him, but we probably prefer someone else to run for president. Um, Barack Obama was a historic president, um, uh, really beloved by his base, um, and had a really strong standing and position. Nobody was really questioning whether uh, he should run for another term in 2011. And those dynamics make everybody a bit weaker, but they also make it less likely that they're going to come to a compromise. McCarthy's weakness makes it very hard for him to do any sort of compromise, or else he might get expelled from the House Speakership. And Biden's weakness means he needs to stand strong. He needs to get a clear victory over Republicans to sort of rally his own base.
1: Paul, in 2011, the most fascinating dynamic was then-Vice President Joe Biden being sent to the Hill by President Obama to negotiate with one then Senate Minority Leader, or well, maybe it was Majority, well, you correct you me. Minority, minority. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to come up with a deal that ended up pulling um, you know, the bacon out of the fire in that last debt ceiling debacle. Right now, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, again, is, he's staying in the background saying, this isn't on me, this is the House. The House has to figure this out. How likely is it that we will see at the, like at the end of the day a reprise of what happened in 2011, a now President Biden and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer hammering out a, a deal that raises the debt ceiling?
2: Yeah, you, you hit on something that's really fascinating. For those of us who are debt ceiling nerds and Senate nerds, Mitch McConnell is... Sort of always this person who gets pulled in at the, you know, at the last minute to, to rescue us from going off over the cliff. Um, sometimes he has helped build the cliff upon which we're about to drive off, but he you know, knows how to grab the steering wheel and, and you know, choose your metaphor. But um, <laughs> McConnell right now um, is in a different spot because the house is in a different spot. Back then in 2011 and then again in 2012 on the fiscal cliff deal and again in reopening the government during the government shutdown in 2013 and in 2019 he had to do it again. Um, Those are situations in which the House Republicans had face planted. They had tried to do something and they were trying to put something together. 2011, Boehner and Obama were working on this big grand bargain, big deal, whatever you want to call it about raising taxes and cutting entitlements. And, uh, and then they just, the whole deal fell apart because Boehner had issues on his right flank. And then that's when McConnell and Biden sort of swooped into this deal. They picked up the papers and whatever Obama and Boehner had been dealing on, and they sorted through and were like, we can do this, we can do that, we can do this, we can't do that, we can't do that, we can't do that. Let's do this, this, and this. And they were able to cobble together a deal. But it was each of them in that, in that instance, and it happened again in late 2012, um, they, were, they were the closers. They were sent in after everything had fallen apart, and they were just there to take the already existing negotiations, figure out what could pass, and get us out of the ditch. And uh, right now, the House Republicans have passed a bill. And so McConnell is just sort of standing back saying, well— they got a bill. I don't have to do anything. And so that's a very different dynamic than what had happened 12 years ago, 11 years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Paul, we're out of time. I can ask you this one one more thing. I have so many questions. Um, I wish we had an hour. Um, but this meeting be- between um, the two, both sides of congressional leadership and the president at the White House on Tuesday, what should we expect
2: to come out of that meeting? Ooh, um. You know, it, it, this is this is really our best chance for, you know, Washington as a as an institution, as a, a noun unto itself to to really get serious about figuring something out um, to a- avoid this uh, this calamity. Um, you know, right now, I think both sides are pretty dug in and they're going to reiterate that they're dug in. And that could if they come out of this meeting with no progress, no no sentiment toward reaching some sort of deal, you know, we are really gonna be staring down uh, this, this X date in early June and it could get really, really ugly. Uh, the financial markets will start to react and not believe and in disbelief that this is happening. Um, you could also get uh, a, a really soft landing in which they agree to punt, suspend the debt limit for a couple more months to give each side a bit more time to debate and haggle over this. Um, But uh, short of that, we could really be heading into several weeks here of a a grand standoff. Well, I have an idea for
1: what what they can do, but you just have to tune into my Sunday show <laughs> to find right. out my, my end of show commentary Paul Kane, senior Congressional correspondent and columnist with The Washington Post. Thank you very much for coming to first look. Have a good weekend. All right, you too, Jonathan. We're going to keep the conversation going uh, with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post where we will find Professor Danielle Allen, a Washington Post contributing columnist, and Robert Kagan, Washington Post editor-at-large. Danielle, Robert, welcome to your debut appearance, I believe, on First Look.
3: Thanks so much, Jonathan, great to be here. <laughs> there's,
1: so, there's so much to talk about um, and we're gonna try to, try to squeeze it all in. Danielle, you have an incredible series in the Post called Renovating Democracy, which makes the case for increasing the size of the House of Representatives as a way of improving American democracy. How does the structure of the House drive some of the forces that have gotten us into this stalemate over the the debt ceiling? What's the relationship there?
3: Well, thanks so much. That was a great conversation about the debt ceiling. It reminded me that the Congress hit its lowest approval rating in 2013. 9% of the American people approved of Congress at that time. And I think that was a direct outgrowth of the 2011 uh, debt ceiling fight that you alluded to. The basic lesson there is that Congress is not responsive to the desires of the American people. And that is at its most extreme when we have a standoff of this magnitude. So why is Congress not responsive? There are a number of reasons. One is the fact that it actually hasn't grown as the population has grown. The House of Representatives was always intended to be the branch that was closest to the people where the elected office holders were most immediately accountable to them, but they now represent about 760,000 people each. Um, There's not a lot of proximity between representatives and their constituents. So if we grow the size of the House, we can bring that ratio back down and really increase responsiveness. Bob, I would love what
1: what's your view? What do you make of Daniel's Danielle's proposition to, about increasing the size of the House of Representatives?
0: Well, I, I've been following Daniel's series, and it's a terrific series, and I've been very interested in. and I'm uh, you know i I'm perfectly fine with the idea, and it's certainly what the founders intended. I, it It does raise a couple of questions for me, though, and and I'm curious actually to to hear danielle's um, you know answer to this. the The one question is, is uh, are we gonna find 218 members of Congress who are willing to vote themselves out of office? Hmm. Um, it seems to me that the incumbents have a real interest in this not happening. So I'm curious how we get over that hurdle. But uh, the other question is who draws the districts? Um, if we're gonna have you know, hundreds of new districts and, and possibly thousands of new districts, uh, how they're drawn is gonna, is gonna have a huge impact on the balance of political power. And I just don't, I haven't heard, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you haven't, Danielle has chaired 550 Blue Ribbon commissions on this subject, so I'm sure <laughs> there, there's an answer to it. But um, but that's just, those are some of the things that I'm curious about. Well, we have Madam Blue
1: Ribbon right here. Do you have, answer,
0: you
3: have answers, <laughs> Danielle? Well, I mean, Robert's point is a really good one. These solutions, there's no single silver bullet solution. So increasing the size of the House of Representatives has to go with a few other things, especially if it's even gonna be feasible and workable. So one of the things that's really critical in my view is changing state level electoral systems. I will write about this a little bit later in the summer in all honesty, but I really like the new model in Alaska. Um, Alaska just had what they call top four elections. They got rid of party primaries, They have an all-comers preliminary instead, and then a final round um, with instant runoff. And what this means is it broadens the pool of people who can run for office. It means candidates are campaigning to the general electorate, both in the preliminary moment and in the final or the sort of general election moment. And then what you have is candidates are sort of freed from what is currently captured by the activist party base. That changing of incentives for our elected officials opens up the space for real innovation, I believe.
1: Um, Bob, I want to get you on um, uh, on the debt ceiling and um, um, and what it does to America's standing abroad. But before we do that, we got to talk about if you're talking about re- reinventing re- reinventing democracy, and we're, we're focused right now in the House of Representatives. Where mm-hmm. does where does the Supreme Court fit in right now? Because we've got our story on the front page of the Washington Post about payments to Jenny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who has been the subject of many reports by ProPublica about the the latest one being uh, 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 Harlan Crowe, the billionaire, paying for tuition for the the justice's uh, grandnephew in addition to buying the the justice's mother's house and she still lives there. How do you reinvent democracy and not have the Supreme Court be a part of it, or is it?
3: Well, it is. (laughs) So a lot of the work that I've been doing comes from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences Commission, um, Our Common Purpose. And there are 31 recommendations, so we've only scratched the tip of the iceberg, really, with the (laughs) increase of the House. Term limits for Supreme Court justices is another recommendation. The idea is that After 18 years of service on the Supreme Court itself, they can rotate off to another part of the federal bench, thereby maintaining lifetime appointments on the federal bench, but limiting the actual service on the court Mm -hmm. to 18 years. Then every presidential term, there are two appointments. There's a sort of straightforward rotation. There's not a question about how many appointments a given president will have. No more gaming of when somebody sort of retires or um, steps off and the like. So I think that kind of reform is really important to recovering legitimacy for the court. Okay. So, Bob, the
1: U.S. is essentially the only country in the world that even has a, a debt ceiling. I mean, Denmark has one, but it, the debt ceiling is so high, it, it, like they, might not ever, they might never really reach it. How does the chaos around the debt ceiling here in this country impact our standing on, on the world stage? Does it make us look weak?
0: I, don't, I, think it, I think it makes us look like what we are, which is an extremely complicated form of government that is not, uh, uh, you know, even despite the founders' efforts, is not exactly designed for efficiency in world leadership or foreign policy <laughs> or anything else. But I think there's a larger question here. And I, it's one that I would ask the Republican leaders. Um, they are the ones who, I think, you know, with some justification, are pointing to the enormous threat posed by China. Um, I can't think of a bigger gift. To Xi Jinping than for the United States to default on its debt and <laughs> and i and it's interesting when i when I hear uh, a lot of China hawks in the Republican party talking about what a what a critical moment this is they they seem to be uh, utterly silent as the United States uh, drives itself off a cliff in a way that would be extremely damaging uh in terms of our competitiveness uh in in dealing with china so there is, there is that um you know. A lot of these, uh, getting back to the democracy questions, which I think are, are really important. My only uh, concern is that we don't have time. <laughs> uh, I think we are going to be facing a national crisis of unprecedented—well, not unprecedented since the Civil War—proportions, uh, and and I don't think any of these uh, these you know smart ideas in, uh, are are going to be able to be put in place by then. So I'm actually worried about the overall. Cliff that the country's about to go over in about 18 months.
1: Well, uh, well, this is a great segue, Bob, because you wrote uh, a widely read piece in the Post more than a year ago titled Our Constitutional Crisis is Already Here, in which you predicted that Trump would win the nomination. Uh, It's early, but he's the front runner for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination given what you just said, I think I know the answer to this, but are you more or less concerned about American democracy since you wrote that piece?
0: Well, I was pretty concerned then and everything is turning out pretty much as I expected. So uh, I guess I'm as concerned, but I'm extremely concerned. I think that, you know, um, if you look ahead a year, I think it's very hard. Uh, I really don't think most Americans, even attentive Americans have really focused on the fact that A year from now, Donald Trump is going to be the strongest person in the country in some respects. Certainly, he's going to dominate the Republican Party. At that point, he will be accumulating votes, which in this country is is the ultimate certification of legitimacy. And so I think he's going to be in an incredibly powerful position. He's going to make it clear to his supporters that if he loses, it can only be as a result of fraud. And therefore, I think the entire Republican Party is going to, if Trump loses, say that the election was fraudulent. And at that point, um, I think we face a very serious possibility of dissolution of the United States and secession. Uh, I know that that sounds uh, uh, extreme, but secession has been a pretty common, what used to be a very common uh, activity, or at least, uh, you know, in the first hundred years of our republic, and our country hasn't changed that much. So I think that's what we're looking at in the 2024 scenario right now.
1: Danielle, do you share, I mean, that's a pretty apocalyptic view, and I'm laughing to keep from crying, Bob.
0: For the first thing in the morning.
1: Danielle, I would love your reaction to to, um, what Bob said, but also wondering what you think poses a bigger threat to American democracy, an individual like Trump, or is it more the systemic deficiencies of our system?
3: Well, Jonathan, honestly, I think the two things are tightly related to each other. And I think Bob's point is right, that we have an immediate political problem and a long-term structural problem. So the real challenge is the question of how do you align responses to those two things? From my point of view, the only answer is we have to build a supermajority for democracy. So now a supermajority for democracy has a long-term vision of what we need to do, but it can also build a supermajority for democracy in the present. That fundamentally right now means splitting the Republican party. The Republican party has been shrinking. People have been leaving. There have been radicalizations within the party. The question really, I think politically is, will the remnant of the party that currently exists, can it be split into those who are for democracy and those who aren't? If it can be split, we can build a supermajority for democracy, and then I think we avoid the existential crisis that Bob just described.
1: Bob, can the Republican party be split in, in that way that Danielle talked about? Makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's certainly the most desirable option, but I don't really see that it's there's much prospect for it. Um it the party will split, but the, the fraction that is uh hostile to Trump or pro-democracy, as Danielle says, is unfortunately a, a a small sliver. And look, I mean, these are elected politicians, they follow uh their their voters, you know. the, the base the Republican Party is is firmly and utterly devoted to Donald Trump and not to the Republican Party. Uh, The Republican party really is at the service at this point of Donald Trump. So much as I would love to see a split, the kind of courage that is required of a politician uh, is is in short supply in Washington and short supply in the Republican party. We've already, the opportunities that Republicans have had to turn against Trump beginning in 2016 and they have never done so. uh, Now when we're in, you know, we're heading toward year eight of this, so I just think it's a fantasy. Unfortunately, it's it's my fantasy too. But it's a fantasy to think that all of a sudden there's going to be some big group of Republicans that's going to stand up uh, and defy Trump when they haven't been doing so for the last seven years. Now,
1: hey Daniel, the time that we we've got, I think about four or five minutes left. But you know, there's another potential threat to democracy, and that's AI. Um, you've written about the potentially problematic relationship between AI and, and democracy. What should be people be concerned about?
3: Well, the challenge with AI, again, it's like the political problem. There are some near-term challenges, and then there are the long-term challenges. And figuring out how to respond to both simultaneously is really hard. The near-term challenges are that we're going to have this proliferation of AI-generated images that are going to support misinformation. We're already starting to see some campaign ads. I think there's, for example, an anti- Biden ad that's been generated by AI that paints a picture of a very dystopian America. Um, there's a question of whether there should be a requirement for campaign ads that they be indicated, you know, this is created by AI so that people know they're not actually looking at reality, even when they're looking at pictures that look completely real. So we have the challenge of the instability of our information ecosystem in the near term. That's gonna make all of the navigating of the politics in the months ahead even harder.
0: What do you think, Bob? <laughs> I think we're in trouble that's what I think but um you know it, it, throughout throughout human history uh, until really very very recently there has never been anything approaching what anybody would call an objective source of the news everything was about rumor everything was about deception uh, everyone had their own truth that that's kind of the norm uh, it's only been in the last century really that there was anything that approached a sort of common uh news uh gathering and and provision system so uh uh, unfortunately we're sort of heading back to normal the the question is and i think danielle would would give you the answer which is can democracy function in such a situation because of course throughout human history democracy has not been the most common form of government so uh we are we're going to be testing new new territory when and we're i mean we're going to be we're already there we're already in a situation where there are multiple truths out there, and I think obviously the AI, um, some of the AI capabilities are going to make that even more, uh, even more the case.
1: You know, Bob, you you mentioned China earlier in our in our conversation, and I just want to uh, um, just get your your view on something that uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said at our um, World Press Freedom event on Wednesday here at the Post. We don't have time to play the full clip. I'll just read you the last part of what he said. Um, uh, about relations between the United States and China. He said, at the very least, we need to have a floor under this relationship. We need to have some guardrails on it. And the way to do that is through engagement. Um, One of the things we've seen, the American ambassador to China says, you're like, hey, we're ready to engage. We've got the Secretary of State saying, hey, we're ready to engage. But when you talk to national security and and Pentagon officials, they say, China's not interested in talking to the United States. How dangerous? how fraught is the relationship really between the united states and china
0: right now well it's obviously highly fraught and and the chinese now are trying to play a diplomatic game where they're going around the world and trying to sort of coax american allies to be a little bit less allied they're also incredibly ham-handed though they keep offending everybody uh so i don't think actually they're being very successful you know there is a there the nations communicate in many ways, and um, you know it would it would be, you know it's it's fine to have a dialogue, but the real question I think the most important question is how does she perceive America's staying power? How does uh, uh, she perceive whether the United States is willing uh, to defend the positions that it's taken in in the region, and whether it is capable of defending them? And those are going to be. The factors that determine she's behavior. Uh, if we ever get to the point where there are negotiations, then that would be a sign, I think, that that she understands that he doesn't really have uh, as many options as he as he may have hoped. But I don't know if we're there yet. I think he is carefully gauging, you know, what is the United States capable of and what are the American people willing to do. And I think those things are in, in, in some question right now, especially as we've said, with the United States about to go off the debt cliff well, right.
1: and Danielle, real real quickly, it seems as though competition against China has actually created bipartisanship of a sort uh, on Capitol Hill. But do you view that as a dangerous sort of recipe where bipartisan China bashing gets rewarded and could could take us down a dangerous path?
3: So that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I think we do need a bipartisan sense of firmness in relationship to the power conflict that's underway right now with China. The question is how can you turn that bipartisan firmness into work that genuinely secures power for the U.S. in the world? So I don't think we're there yet from a strategic point of view, but I think having that bipartisan group with the motivation to find that is in fact actually valuable.
1: This has been an incredible conversation. Time just flew. We're gonna have to get this combination back again. Professor Danielle Allen, Robert Kagan, thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend.
3: You too. Thanks, Thanks, Jonathan.
0: Jonathan. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.